0: Hey, listeners, welcome back to another episode of Pediatric Meltdown, and I am so excited about today's podcast because I really want to share something that was life-altering for me, and that's the Child Psychiatry Access Program here in Michigan, known as MC3. Today we're going to hear about the origin story of these Child Psychiatry Access Programs from one of the originators and also from our Michigan program. Dr. John Strauss is the founding director of the Massachusetts Child Psychiatry Access Program, known as MCPAP. MCPAP was the first statewide program designed to address the shortage of child psychiatrists and is a model for the implementation of child psychiatry access programs, also known as CPAPs, in 46 other states. He is president of the National Network of Child Psychiatry Access Programs, a nonprofit dedicated to providing technical assistance and support to CPAPs. Dr. Strauss was responsible for the expansion of MCPAP to include MCPAP for moms to address perinatal depression, mental illness, and substance use. Legislation for the national expansion of both programs was included in the 21st Century Cures Act and the federal budget resulting in completed procurement by HRSA, resulting grants to 21 states for children and 7 states for mom. Most recently, with funding in the American Rescue Plan Act, HRSA announced funding for 24 additional programs. Beginning in 2019, using the MCPAP model, Dr. Strauss designed the Massachusetts Consultant Service for Treatment of Addiction and Pain to assist adult primary care providers with substance use disorder and chronic pain issues. Dr. Strauss is Medical Director of Special Projects at the Massachusetts Behavioral Health Partnership, having retired from his full-time position as Vice President of Medical Affairs. Prior to working at the MBHP, Dr. Strauss was Medical Director of the Fallon Community Health Plan. He currently is a member of the HEDIS Behavioral Health Measurement Advisory Panel, having been involved with HEDIS since its inception. Dr. Strauss is responsible for the technique of health plan measurement, known as the hybrid method. He is a pediatrician, having had primary care practice for 22 years. Dr. Strauss completed medical training at Columbia University University, Pediatric training at Strong Memorial Hospital at the University of Rochester and was a Robert Wood Johnson Clinical Scholar at Johns Hopkins Medical School. Dr. Sheila Marcus is the Program Director and Professor of Psychiatry and Immediate Past Section Director of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry at the University of Michigan Medical School, Michigan Medicine. She is the PI for the Michigan Child Collaborative Care Program. MC3, and oversees all aspects of that project. Globally, Dr. Marcus oversees education, development, and implementation, establishes partnerships with primary care providers, elicits feedback and modifies the program based on stakeholder input, provides oversight on program evaluation, and works with both the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services and HRSA on CQI. This is oversight and dissemination of the program. Her areas of interest include the integration of mental health treatment in primary care settings, and she has provided consultation to primary care providers for the last 25 years. In addition to MC3, she also oversees another large grant to provide training to 60 clinicians across the state of Michigan in trauma informed care. This is known as the Child Parent Psychotherapy for Young Children. Dr. Marcus has worked on several NIH-funded research projects, including a project to examine the impact of treatment in pregnancy and postpartum, and impact on maternal and child health outcomes, and has served as co-investigator on a large NIH trial to understand pharmacologic and therapeutic outcomes in depression management. Please join me in welcoming these esteemed clinicians to the podcast. Hi, John. Hi, Sheila. How are you guys? Great to see you, Leah.
1: Hi. Great to see you, Leah. Hope the weather's okay out your way.
0: It's super cold. It is like burr, like I'd like to go for walks, but I'm like, yeah, windshield of five, not going to do it. So, well, listen, I want to welcome both of you to the podcast and, you know, really wanted to talk about this um, psychiatry support for primary care, because we are doing a lot of mental health and behavioral health work and it, it's just tough. And we, we need our friends. And most pediatricians, honestly, if we said, what would you like to do with this kid, they'd be like, send him to a psychiatrist, but you know, that's not going to happen. But then there was this brilliant thing that happened, these child psychiatry access program. And John, you kind of started it. And I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about first of all, you know, how'd you get in pediatrics? And then What was your uh, stroke of brilliance that made this happen?
1: Well, uh, thank you, Leah, for having me on today. Well, I went to medical school back in the 70s, and during medical school, I liked my rotations around kids, and I really was intrigued by public health and treating populations. So I took those interests into my choice of residencies. I went to University of Rochester, which back in the 70s was very focused on treating kids as a population, not just individuals. And uh, I learned a lot from them and uh, have continued it throughout my career. So then go forward 30 years, and I was had the opportunity to be working for a actually a managed care company in Massachusetts. And the state had begun to recognize, the Medicaid folks, that there were increasing numbers of uh, prescriptions for psychotropics with kids and that didn't seem like a good thing and they looked at it further and saw that it was mostly pediatricians doing it and when you talked to the pediatricians they said we don't want to be doing this they should be seen by psychiatrists as you said earlier so someone came up with the idea i can't actually claim the original idea that maybe if we could do consultation with the pediatricians we could help them take care of uh, kids better and uh, maybe not use medications when therapy might be fine. And there was a small pilot at the University of Massachusetts. And then I took over to try and figure out how to do this at a statewide level. And that was back in 2004. And as of uh, the last round of grants, we're in 40, we will be in 46 states to. Two territories and two Indian tribes.
0: Yeah, that, it's just such an amazing, it, it's just a great journey, but also, you know, you can take an idea and you can do something with it and make a difference. I was talking to Moira Salaji, who's our AAP yeah. president now, and did an interview with her a long time. She went to University of Rochester and was assigned to a foster care clinic, and she said it was just abysmal. Mm-hmm then she kind of yeah. changed the world for foster care. So I think to listeners out there is like your idea can become a thing. So right. that's amazing.
1: Well, the the folks that started, it didn't see it as a population. They thought it was great. It was helpful for it. They helped a few of the, of the university-based practices, but they didn't see it as something that really could grow. And I immediately picked up that it was, this was work for everybody. But the other principle is that was very important was that when they started, they sort of had the idea that a, if a pediatrician or family medicine physician had a question about a kid, they'd see the kid, diagnose and develop a treatment plan, send the kid back to the primary care. But that meant that every kid who needed treatment would have to be seen by a psychiatrist. That wasn't going to help. It was better than the psychiatrist continuing to see the child every three months or something, but it wasn't good enough to do it as a, for a population. Because remember, 20% of kids have a behavioral health need. So what, what I picked up on was that we had to make it so that we were not fishing for the pediatrician, but teaching the pediatrician to fish so that they could take over and not take over all the time because there's care that's appropriate in permanent care. And there's care that needs specialty care. And We're trying to right-size it so that the limited number of child psychiatrists can take care of the kids that really need that care. And uh, it's not always a perfect balance, but we're always working to get there.
0: So you're the pediatrician on the lead, and then there's the psychiatry piece. So Sheila is child psychiatry, and she hears the story. How did Michigan get involved? Because now we have a program in Michigan. Sure.
2: So I heard this goes back to probably 2010, something like that. I heard John, John and colleagues speak um, at a national meeting for child psychiatry service chiefs and you know beginning to tell the story about the McPap program and knew that the state of Michigan was in pretty dire straits as well. We're a sort of semi-rural state. We've got urban hubs in the southeast southwest, but lots of the state is is pretty rural. And I thought we really need something like this where we can take our academic hub and and get it into the rural region. So I mean as you know Leah the the distance between Ann Arbor, Michigan and you know the distant stretches of the UP are about 12 hours driving. So it's a it's a very large, very rural state. So I heard this and I thought we need to do this. And so I met In another unrelated meeting with a member of our Department of Health and Human Services at Michigan, one of the consultants who literally scribbled on a a cocktail napkin the name of a couple of pediatricians, one of whom was Leah's name. And Leah was in the Southwest part of Michigan and Kalamazoo. And we happened to have a little bit of grant money through an organization in the Southwest. And so I blind Facebooked. Leah on a Friday evening and said, you know, you're going to think I'm crazy, but look, I'm truly, I'm a child psychiatrist and I'm wondering about this program. What do you think? And she kind of, she returned the call. So that's yeah, how it I,
0: started. I practically fell out of my chair. It was like, wait a minute, you want to talk to me? And on the same day, like, are you serious? <laughs> like, you must be joking. I couldn't believe that this was A thing because, you know, I was just, I mean, I was one of those pediatricians writing prescriptions and sometimes I think very appropriately and doing a great job. But I know that there were times that I was, you know, I was doing the best I could, but I needed help. I needed somebody to guide me on things. And, you know, so I was super geeked. The uptake has been a little bit slow. And I was going to ask you, John. You know, what's the engagement been like with pediatricians? I mean, I I wonder sometimes if they're not worried, like, if I participate in this program, it means that I'm signing on to do the work and I really don't want to do it. And so now if I call the psychiatrist and they say, why don't you try blah, 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 well, now I have to. Has that been your
2: experience?
1: Well, it certainly was at the beginning. It took us close to four years to get pretty much over 95% of practices enrolled, And we still have some pediatricians who clearly don't want to do it, but hopefully someone in their practice does. And in any given year, over 80% of all the practices in the state call us at least once. And if you look at the pediatrician level, family medicine doesn't call us as much, but if you look at for pediatricians, we're running around 60% of pediatricians are calling us each year, each pediatrician. So that's pretty good in terms of People having come, Peter, having come to expect that. I think what's made the difference is a couple things. One is they get a very personal relationship when they talk to the consultant. Sheila knows that, and they feel comfortable. We're not going to say, you know, we're not uh, making them feel defensive, um, or hopefully not. And we're trying to meet them at where they're at, move them along. You know, so we're we're getting folks that are very sophisticated in what they are willing to do because they've been doing this for a while. But they also don't know that they really don't have a choice because they it doesn't help to go back and say to the mom, I can't help you. And that's not the style of pediatrics. And being able to efficiently get help, and we're very conscious, and I'm sure Sheila does this in Michigan as well, we're very conscious that we only have a limited amount of time and we really have to cut to the chase. We're not going to give a half an hour lecture about whatever, but we educate over time and it's amazing what people do learn. And we will answer the question or the need. There's never, I can't help you. There's always something we can do. Sometimes it's not ideal. We can't create a a therapist in a community where there is none that takes what some weird insurance, but we'll help. We'll hold their hands. Sometimes it's their kids that are clearly more complex. I'm sure, Sheila, in the Upper Peninsula, there are times when you're talking to where you, you know, you're sure, you know, this is really not something the primary care doc should be doing, but there's no choice. And they understand that. And we're here to help. And, you know, a kid getting out of the hospital, if you really have an appointment with a psychiatrist, if they end up on the in the pediatric office, Leah, you know that, you, you can't kick them out. <laughs> No. And I
0: like what you said about that. You know, honestly, my experience prior to meeting Sheila was the psychiatrist that I encountered, the message I got was, you're a pediatrician, you shouldn't be doing this, but I can't help you because I can't see the kids. And so I was stuck, you know, it was like, I'm doing it, but now I feel like I don't know what I'm doing because you don't believe in me. And I think the biggest thing that uh, happened for me with Sheila and her group was this validation, like, you know, you're, you're doing the best you can. And I mean, Sheila, what surprised you when you started talking to pediatricians?
2: You know, when we designed the program in my head, we were designing it to help pediatric colleagues with mild to moderate cases. I really thought we were going to be getting mostly ADHD, anxiety, depression, scaffolding, SSRI starts. And we do get some of that. But more what we get are moderate to severe cases. I mean, part of what I say to people is this isn't hard because you're inadequate. This is hard because these are very complex cases. So when we look at our data, coming out of the program in Michigan, 30. So we have a program for pediatricians and a program for obstetrics. So we have both perinatal and pediatric programs. Of our moms, 35, a third have had past suicidal ideation or past suicide attempts and hospitalization. Up to two thirds have had significant trauma. Of our young children, what was interesting to me is when you look at the population that has the most psychotropics, It's young children. So the little kids come to us on average on two or more medications. And most of those are carrying diagnoses of oppositional defiant disorder or ADHD. But what it really is, is pretty significant trauma. So I think what surprised me the most is the level of severity that all of our pediatric and primary care colleagues are managing. These are very ill people.
1: Well, I was just saying that I'd like to compare what we're doing to how pediatricians manage asthma. You probably take care of what? If you look at all your kids with asthma, you probably take care of what? 90% of them? Uh,
0: 95.
1: 95. Okay.
0: For sure. There are a
1: few that have to go to a pulmonologist who you need help with. And that kind of balance between specialty and primary care is key if every person with asthma or even half of of the people, kids with asthma had to go to a pulmonologist, we'd have people wheezing all over the place. So it it really depends upon the system working well. We're trying to right size, I call it right sizing. We're trying to right size mental health so that the specialists are taking care of the kids they should and the pediatricians are not. But if someone comes in wheezing that, happens to be a tough kid that usually sees a pulmonologist you're still gonna you're still gonna do something (laughs) sure (laughs) and i might
0: call i might call a pulmonologist i think that was the
1: thing that surprised me is
0: you know in every other field of medicine like endocrinology i mean i'd have a kid that's like yeah i think they have a thyroid thing and i'd call my endocrinologist and say hey i've got this kid I was thinking I should start some Synthroid. What do you think? Is this the dose? Is that okay? And, you know, so that model was there. We just didn't have the relationships with our child psychiatrists.
1: But in defense of of Sheila and the child psychiatrists, they didn't have the funding mechanism, the business Mm -hmm. model, because they're getting paid per minute, basically, whether it's a half an hour or a 20 minute visit or an hour visit, they're getting paid to to do face-to-face treatment. And what we've done is provided funding so that they have the time to talk on the telephone. One of the things that a lot of the medical other medical specialties have is they're like we are in pediatrics, where there's no fixed time for a visit. You, yeah, I, you vary I your visit by the complexity and what needs yeah. to happen. And sometimes, you know, it's a quick sore throat that takes you one minute. And sometimes even that sore throat ends up being not admitted because all of a sudden there's all sorts of other things that haven't been taken care of. So we vary a lot of the time. Psychiatry doesn't have the ability to, to do that. And therefore, that was why the callbacks were impossible. Oh, that and, makes
0: so much sense. I I honestly never thought of it that way. So I apologize, and, Sheila, if I thought you guys weren't stepping up. <laughs> no?
1: So what well, we mean, do now is we're these programs are paying a psychiatrist to have a, a day a week or whatever it is to be a, a, available on the phone whenever the phone rings, and that's just huge. And the, Sheila, you, I think they that you guys love it. Uh, Because it's really a change and you're, you're helping not just that one patient in front of you, but you're helping a whole panel of patients from the permit care practice. Well,
2: and you love, I mean, it's a day where, so this is pre pandemic, right? So in the world before everything was face to face, it was an opportunity for the psychiatrist to be wherever, right? You, You can be home, you can be in Northern Michigan, you can be out of state if you have, and you can answer the phone. So it, it gave you a lot of flexibility. And I loved talking to colleagues all over the state. I mean, it was just a joy to say, well, how are things in Alpena? Is it snowing up there? What's happening in the UP? I loved all of that. And just recently, actually, the billing code. So one of the one of the continued concerns on the primary care side is how do I fit this into my day? How do I find fit this into my workflow? And so we try to help facilitate doing online you know people can submit things online the night before and then we'll pick it up the next day they say you know i'm seeing this kiddo at three just call me before three but the other thing is if you're seeing a child on a given day and you talk to the psychiatrist that day you can using the 99215 you know the add-ons you can you can use those consultation codes and just add them onto your visit length for that day if if the consult occurs in the same day. So that I think has been a plus in primary care too because you can bill for it now. Yeah, um, and every little bit. And I mean, and it's real work, right?
0: I mean, it, it's, yeah, of course. it's
2: really it's a lot legitimately of legitimately consulting with somebody about your case so you can document and consult and count all of that time. John, I was going to ask you, you mentioned earlier
0: that there are programs in forty six states now, and I know when when Sheila started out, I mean it was in two counties and now we're in all eighty three so you know what what are the kind of the what's the factors that allow states to start doing the program what's keeping the four states not and and what are some of the barriers to sustainability
1: yeah, good question. The main difference I mean, between two 2000- thousand when we started in 2016, things were sort of growing organically with support from the legislature, some grant funding, and we had gotten up to, I don't know, 25, 27 states. And then in 2015, the 21st Century Cures Act had um, money in it for the federal government the HRSA, the Health Service Health Resources and Services Administration, to support states developing these programs. And this was money that both the American Academy of Child Analysis Psychiatrists and the American Academy of Pediatrics fought very hard for and got in the bill. It was one of the last things Obama did to sign that bill. And it included for these programs, it took a year before the money was appropriated, but it did get appropriated even during trump and the so the first in the first round in the first year in two thousand seventeen twenty eighteen states and the next year three and then in the most recent code american Rescue plan act uh the there was money to Fund the rest of the states, so there are four still that haven't received funding, and uh, there's another round in February, hopefully the rest the remaining ones will and I should point out that this is really seed funding, but it's important it's not uh, it's allowed Michigan, I think Sheila right to expand to all the states i mean all the states, all the counties and but in the long term, as has happened in Massachusetts and the state of Washington. This needs to become built into the insurance world. And in Massachusetts, the cost of the program is split amongst the insurers, and each insurer gets a bill. And uh, it's not very much money in in the world of insurance, health insurance, very barely seen. And th- that way, it, builds, it becomes a sustainable funding source over time. And I don't know if, if there's been any movement in Michigan to do that, but it really is a long-term way that these programs will continue to be funding, funded. Because if you had asked me back in 2004, would we be here 18 years later? I would have said, you're crazy. By then, we'll have taught everything we know. Everyone will have learned everything. And mental health just isn't that way.
0: No. I mean, it's, a, it, right. it's an ongoing need and the problems are the problems. And so, Sheila, what's, what, what do you think as far as what you're so, seeing in Michigan?
2: Yeah, so Michigan, I would say Massachusetts is out ahead of where, you know, it is about five or six years ahead of where Michigan is. So we went from grant funding to something called the, it was under Governor Snyder, uh, the Governor's Mental Health and Wellness, which was a, a pot of money that funded this program for five or six years. And we now are under the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services budget. We w- are working pretty, ac- we, we now have great advocacy, largely through the Michigan Academy of Peds, as well as advocates at business level and all over the state that are working with the state legislators and the, the sort of people making budget decisions about MC3. And it's now enough immersed in the legislative and the executive consciousness that that we're. I, I think it would be not impossible to cut, but problematic to cut at this point. In terms of where we're going, Michigan is frankly a little more purple perhaps than than Massachusetts is. And so there's some talk about, well, maybe it would be the insurance programs or maybe it would be underwritten through a bottle tax or a gas, you know, but some kind of a thing like that that would also fund it or just get it to the point that it's a, a state line item although those also can be caught. But I, I think it's well enough known now by primary care and by schools and by hospitals and by businesses that it's pretty well entrenched in the state consciousness at this point. So we'll see. At
1: least say purple, I would think that getting a tax raised would be harder than getting the insurers to pay, but Maybe. We, we never could have gotten a tax done.
2: A tax, I mean. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, I mean, and Sheila, Michigan, you mentioned has perinatal program. I mean, can you talk mm-hmm. a little bit about not all states have these dual programs, but sure. what what's that look like?
2: So um, we st- we started the perinatal program really right toward the beginning. And some of that was just totally serendipitous out of uh, sort of where the, the Michigan program grew. So Ann Arbor, Michigan is where a woman whose name is Selma Freiberg, she's sort of seen as the grandmother, if you will, of infant mental health. She trained here. And so infant mental health grew up out of here. As a result, many people who train in either pediatrics or OB or perinatal medicine have this sort of infant mental health lens. So, um, My personal desire, when I came out of medical school, I thought hard about OB pediatrics, child psychiatry. Our family joke is that my dad is a pediatrician. My mother is a social worker. So if you made a pediatrician, so you're going to get a child psychiatrist, (laughs) which is what, what they got. But I really loved all three of those fields. And so it was logical to me when I you know, saw these children who were traumatized that I really needed to treat their caregivers too. And uh, for the beginning of my career, I did a lot of work in OB and OB screening and that if you're treating a mom for postpartum illness or prepartum illness, you got to think about the baby and the attachment issues and how to make sure that the diet is healthy. So for me, it just made a lot of sense. If you're doing this at your specialty care site, you want to be supporting your primary care colleagues in the same way. So our perinatal, pro, the portion of our program that serves moms pre and, and postpartum has many of our child psychiatrists. So so several days of the week, we have a perinatal psychiatrist and a, pedi- and a pediatric psychiatrist. And some days it's one of us that does both. But all of the time we're thinking about, if we're thinking about trauma in the mom, we're thinking about what does this mean for the baby? We're thinking about infant mental health services. We're thinking when we treat the mom during pregnancy, what are we gonna do about the sleep schedule after the baby is born? um so i really like the fact that the michigan program is dual it's sort of very consistent with our zero to thrive notion which is a program at michigan serving pregnancy through age 5 well, years. i think it it makes sense with our you know sort of continuum
0: because you know we're we're asked and expected to screen these mamas for postpartum mm-hmm. stuff and not that i would treat the mom but it would be nice if i I mean, I could call MC3 and say, hey, I've got this mom, what do you suggest? And you might say, well, call your OB and tell them to call us too. Right. right. So it just makes a nice net. I mean, what are some of the other, oh, go ahead, I'm sorry, John.
1: So Leah, I I think that one of the things that, because we also have, we call it McPapra moms, and is that it's really been an extension of this kind of of support for permanent specialty which OB really is, because two-thirds of women who get postpartum depression are identifiable for delivery, about a third before pregnancy, and then a third during pregnancy, and then a third truly postpartum. So the challenge has been that most of prenatal screening was, mental health screening was not being done in prenatal care. And so these programs have had to Take the OB world and train it to do screening and understand. And again, they're not going to find a perinatal psychiatrist if someone screens positive. So to understand what to how to evaluate and how to manage this person uh, during pregnancy, and that's they've really. I mean, these you know remember OBs are basically surgeons. They really take into this, and it's been very successful across the country. And uh, again, this kind of learning as you do. Some, some didactic teaching, but mostly learning uh, as you go along, which is the way most medicine, yeah. most same. docs learn.
2: See one, do one, teach one, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah, I remember. I, I I will say this in Michigan, and I don't know if it's the same way, John, in Massachusetts, we definitely get calls from OBs, but we get more calls from nurse midwives and nurse yes. practitioners yeah. on yeah. the OB side of the but,
1: house. But, but of course, the the... The standards have changed now. The prenatal care is supposed to include a, a depression screen. But yeah. it's, uh, and that's uh, relatively new, yeah. in, what, five years ago. But the whole practice is screening. So yes, it's usually the midwives who are calling. But the, the, the obstetricians have had to recognize that the workflow has to include the screen yeah. and has to include mental health care.
0: Yeah. Well, everybody has to be on has to be on board. And one of the things that when we had talked previous to this podcast, Sheila, you talked about next gen training. Tell tell me what you
2: mean by that. Sure. Well, that was actually part of so John, you're absolutely right. The the HERSA grant allowed Michigan to expand into all counties and into what we call our next gen. So part of what we were hearing from pediatric and family colleagues is You know, I wish somebody had told me in training that this is what my life would have looked like because I would have paid attention to that one hour lecture I got on all of mental health. And so we decided that we needed to move the training, not just to practicing pediatricians and family medicine docs, but into the into the training programs and we're fortunate in that we partner with Michigan State, and Michigan State has these essentially community campuses, educational campuses throughout the state of Michigan with training programs. And so we are we are training through through most of those programs, and are doing likewise in with nurse practitioners and PAs, et cetera. So that's sort of we, you know, part of what we like many of the programs offer are these panel reviews and brown bag lunches and case consultations and those are lend themselves really nicely to the residents you know so if you can call the training director and say you know say in may for next year's didactic series, if you ever have a brown bag lunch thing and you want, you know, an expert to come in and do mental health, we'll do it for you, and then they can usually get it hardwired into their didactic schedule for their new conference.
1: Sheila, I don't know if you've tried it though. I know uh, Sandy Frisch has done did this when she was in Maine, where she actually had one of the Child Psych Fellows be a consultant to their to the permit to the, to pediatric the Program so that they sort of built in this this uh-huh. process right from the very beginning, and uh-huh. they the child psychiatry fellows learned to do it as, and the pediatrician learned how to what they could ask for in terms of advice.
0: Yeah, I mean, I feel yeah, like that's... honestly, I wish that child psychiatry rotated through our clinics and that we could rotate through theirs because, yeah. I mean, child I think what pediatricians are really good at is. Development. I mean, it's like our thing. I mean, we know what normal development is, and we know what when it's not normal. And, or when we need something when it's not typical. So, you know, so I think we could like cross pollinate that way. And I, I would love to see that. I, I think one of the other things, um, John, I think you had talked about earlier, another area of expansion was substance use. And yes. we just have so little access to, you know, even therapists that know anything about substance. What are you, what are you hoping to
1: develop? Well, in Massachusetts, we're very lucky because we have Boston Children's Hospital has a substance use service led by Sharon Levy, sort of the na- one of the national experts on teen substance use, and so they have they're available as consultants now. So if we get a call around substance use, they will one of, one of their team takes the call, and if and and we also now have added virtual counseling to that team, so that because there's been a lot of emphasis on SBIRT. So you, you in primary care, where you screen and you do brief intervention, then referral to treatment. But unfortunately, these days there's a lot of kids that are in between brief intervention and referral to treatment. They're not going to go to a state-run substance use program. They're vaping. They're using more nicotine, you know, uh, vaping with nicotine or marijuana, whatever, and it's 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 disrupting their education and their life. And those kids are not they're not as dysfunctional as ones that usually we go to a full immersion substance use program, so we're providing counseling for those kids remotely and it's it's really working now, obviously some don't take it but they're those kids are at huge risk for ongoing for for adult substance use so we're really looking forward and we're really excited i should say about being able to uh uh, offer something to the pediatricians who when they 're doing the screening, are very frustrated with what can I what can I do with this kid who uh, needs help but there's they 're just not about to go and sign up for for counseling going to a counseling substance use counseling program well, you
0: to try and find that i mean we don 't have an inpatient. Yeah inpatient substance use program in Michigan at all, period, yeah. for teens. And and trying to find a therapist that, you know, I mean, I had a kid that had cyclic vomiting because of marijuana use.
2: And
1: yeah. to
0: try and find somebody who had that expertise, no. that, that's really, I, it's very smart. Well, so
1: and, and in addition, there's more and more uh, for uh, other than obviously for opiates, there's more p- opportunity to use medication for some of these kids. And the, so the team between the counseling and the, the uh, physician cons- consultation, they can help the pediatrician with prescribing uh, mucomycin for uh, whatever it is that they're trying these days.
0: Well, it certainly sounds like something our adult colleagues could certainly use this model for for mm-hmm. help. We've
1: built one for adults, too.
0: (laughs) Of course you have. (laughs) Of course you have. Well, and and so in talking about, first of all, you know, how do pediatricians find these in their states? And for those who don't have the programs, and I looked them up, I think it's Ohio, South Dakota, Idaho, and Arizona, as I recall, how do those folks advocate to get this? What are your suggestions, Jen?
1: Yeah, well, first of all, There's an organization we've formed on the board as well uh, Mm -hmm. called the National Network of Child Psychiatry Access Programs. And if you go to our website, www.nncpap.org, you'll see a map of the country and you can click on the state and you'll get your local programs contact information. So start there. And I think for the few states that don't have it or if you feel, if you're of a, a, a political mind that you want to help, all these programs need help and support to achieve sustainability, uh, I think going through the the uh, American Academy, chat local your local state chapter is probably your best way. Yeah. And many states have formed a, uh, a mental health task force between the state chapter of the AAP and the state chapter of ACAP that, American Association of Child Adolescent Psychiatrists and other stakeholders to be an advocacy group.
0: Sheila, is that something on the ACAP side that your folks that are in those areas can link up with
2: pediatricians? Oh, absolutely. I was just thinking, John, as you said that, huh, is our, our, so I'm on a task force within the Michigan AAP, but can we connect with the ACAP? I, there's no, there's no, reason that we couldn't or shouldn't so i think that's a that's a great idea
0: i wrangled Sheila to become a member of our michigan ap chapter so she sits <laughs> on our committee we have two right. child psychiatrists and i actually joined acap so i'm i'm a, a
1: member of acap now <laughs> i
0: think john and i were the only pediatricians at an acap meeting where i think i first met you years ago yeah, um, yeah. so i i i'll tell you when i went to acap i had this huge aha i went huh child psychiatrists think about this differently than we do. <laughs> and, you know, I've seen that through the consults that I've done with the child psychiatrists, when they'll ask questions, I am like, oh, I didn't think about that. And, and literally, and I've said this so many times, it totally changed my prescribing practices for the better, I, I think it made me much more conservative, and then I got better at it, you know. So that a lot of times I'd be like, Well, she would tell me to do blah blah, and so I would try that first, and then I'd call her because it
1: didn't work or
0: something, right? right, right. <laughs> because but, Leah, so I think it works the other way harder,
1: I think it works the other way as well. Because some of, as Sheila said, calls are getting increasingly complex, and a lot of these complex calls are because. The problem is not an intrinsic mental health issue. It's environmental, whether it's right. trauma or some other social determinant of health. And the pediatricians, for the psychiatrist to pick all that up in a brief you know, consultation it just does, is hard. But right. you as a pediatrician know the family's history, you know what the family's struggling with. And that may be well why the uh, stimulant isn't working. And that knowledge is much is as important to figuring out what to do as just knowing which, which psychotropic to use. Or well, what goes.
0: I mean, abs- you know, you're not going to pay attention at school if you don't know which couch you're sleeping on tonight. Right. And, yeah, and, and I often, think that we have, to, we have to keep that. And that's something, Sheila, you've asked me so many times, what about trauma? Is there any trauma history? And I know well, I should know that,
2: but yeah. you would ask that. Or what does this, this mother and this child feel like together in the room? Is there a relational component? Is this a mother who's asking for meds to treat a problem that there is no medication to treat because she's helpless, she's hopeless, she's worried that this young boy is going to abuse her just like his dad did? There isn't a medication for that. and And giving people permission at times to say to the parent, I can't in good faith, Prescribe anything more or anything, period. I know it's been hard to find therapy. We're going to work on that together. But sometimes, in the in the spirit of first do no harm, it's totally okay to say I can't prescribe anymore until we get the treatment of choice, which is right, which it's is really it's really not about a medication. I mean,
0: you know, it's just not, you know, right.
2: Yeah. Or, or the ghost or the tread water. I often give people the, you know, with parents like this, we both know you're going to burn through 10 meds and none of them are going to work. So unlike with a child where you know an adequate prescription of an appropriate SSRI is going to get them fully well in a month, and you want to move and move quickly. With other families, let's do, let's slow walk it. Let's do 10x 0.25 twice a day, and then 0.3 twice a day. And then when they call and say that doesn't work, because nothing's going to work. They just need to get into therapy. So we're buying six months till they can. So...
1: Leah, I I wonder if if we have a few minutes. I think the Michigan program has a unique component, which is the distribution of clinicians throughout the state, right?
0: Oh, the behavioral health consultants. consultants. And I think that
1: people ought to hear about that because I think it's a model many more rural states can use. In Massachusetts, we're lucky that you're never that far from an academic center, but obviously in Michigan, you are. And so I think the way uh, MC3 has solved that as ingenious.
2: Sure, go ahead and share that, Sheila. Sure, so we, our main academic hubs are the University of Michigan, which is in Ann Arbor, and then we partner with Michigan State, largely for, currently for the education stuff, but our behavioral health consultants, there are up to 11 to 14 of them at any given time, and they are in, they are spread throughout the state. They're actually hired through the CMH, but funded through this program. So they're intimately familiar with the resources in their area of the state. They know exactly who's good, who has time, who accepts, of course, what insurance is, what the geography, you know, what, what the geographic issues around getting to those places. They're also very familiar with the community mental health because that's where they work. So they know who will meet the severity threshold to get in and not get in and how they can backdoor things there. Um, So I do think that that geographic, that, that sort of regional distribution and the fact that the phones are sort of switched off. So we have a model where on any given day or days of the week, several of them are embedded in clinics. And when they're embedded, the phone rings to somebody else's phone, they'll they'll get us the phone consultations, the psychiatric phone consultations. But plugging in the resources always goes back to the the local person.
0: I wonder Um, now, too, one of the things you had mentioned, John, is sometimes about not being able to find a therapist who has this type of insurance with COVID. Now we have this whole new kind of opportunity to use, you know, somebody in the UP could use a therapist from, you know, Detroit. And so, but connecting those so that the, you know, the behavioral health consultant in the UP could talk to the one in Detroit and say, hey, I've got somebody that needs this kind of help. Do you have somebody down your way? Um, And that, I think, may revolutionize the access to mental health services. Who knew that there would be something good out of COVID, right? <laughs>
2: yeah. Yeah, no well, I, I do think distributing the psychotherapeutic resources in a uh, you know an MC3 or a McPap kind of a way is another big next step getting well, psychologists and social workers supervising or providing brief interventions remotely.
0: Well, I want to be mindful of your time. And so my final question for you both, and I'll start with John, is if you could go back and talk to yourself as a resident, what advice would you give yourself?
1: Love that. And it may not always be what makes you the most money or gives you the most power if you're into power, but you got you to do what you love.
2: How about you, Sheila something similar, you know, go with your gut, be flexible. I mean, as I said, when I came out of school, I was not sure about which path, whether it was ob or child psychiatry, but having done child psychiatry and overseen both pediatric and a perinatal mental health program, I mean, you you don't have to do it all at once. A, a career is a long time, so enjoy the journey, <laughs> enjoy the ride, and, and you know, do what you love and be flexible in doing it.
0: Wisdom from both of you. Thank you so much. I appreciate your time and all the work that you're doing. And I mean, you guys are both visionaries and I think it's really important what you're doing for for primary care and for psychiatrists because I I know it goes both ways. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Leah. Have a great day. Take care. Isn't this just so good? I love these people so much for helping us. So here are my takeaways. Number one, what began as a few Massachusetts psychiatrists helping a few pediatricians in 2004 became a national program that is now in 46 states in 2022. One person's idea can begin a movement. That person could be you. Number two, 20% of kids will have a mental health disorder and pediatricians are writing most of the psychotropic medication prescriptions. I know we all wish that we could have more child psychiatrists to help us, but as a good friend of mine once said, the Calvary ain't coming. There just are not enough child psychiatrists. So these CPAPs provide curbside consultation to, as Dr. Strauss put it, help right-size care. What do we really need? Do we need a child psychiatrist, or is this something we can do, or is this a child that really needs to go on for higher-level assessment? Number three, much of child psychiatry, such as ADHD, anxiety, and depression, can and should be done in primary care. And Dr. Strauss compared it to asthma, where we treat 90-plus percent of asthma cases, and, you know, just a few of those go on to pulmonology. Likewise, we can free up our psychiatry colleagues by doing much of the behavioral health work ourselves. Okay, I know you already do, but that way they can help us with the kids who have the most severe disorders Number four, the CPAP structure varies by state, as does the funding. Many programs are grant-funded with some state funding, but we need sustainability. And the question really is, can insurance companies begin paying for this? And, you know, my feedback on that would be, hello, yes, they should. This is such important preventive care. Number five, a huge message for me from Sheila was, You're not incompetent. These are just really hard cases. The psychiatrist at Michigan Medicine had expected mild to moderate cases, but what they found was that pediatricians were managing moderate to severe cases, and many of these kids just didn't have any access to higher-level care, and the pediatricians were really going it alone because they had no choice. Number six, for me, MC3 has been life-altering, and I've said that over and over again through many podcasts. I'm not alone. I'm a better prescriber, a better diagnostician, and bonus, I made new friends. Number seven, while psychopharmacology guidance is part of the service, diagnostic clarification is key, and the child psychiatrist helped us Me for sure, ask the right questions better questions like, Is there trauma? Could this be autism? What about social determinants of health? What about family history? Number eight, in the most difficult scenarios, there is often trauma, including multi generational trauma, poverty, and social determinants of health. This isn't psychiatric pathology, it is a response to adversity, and it looks like anxiety oppositional defiant disorder. That is the disorder description I hate the most because I think it is so not helpful. And conduct disorder. And medication is not the remedy. This is where we need a network of services that are at the ready. And and it's not easy work at all, but it is the right work. Number nine, MC3 places, behavioral health consultants across the state of Michigan to help identify resources regionally so that they can meet the needs of those clinicians in those regions. If you don't have that, a directory and community partners is essential because, again, we, we just can't go this alone. Number 10, Many CPAPs have extended services that include perinatal care for mamas and substance use disorder, but this varies by state. So both MCPAP and MC3 have those resources, but again, you have to check your state to see what you've got. Number 11, upcoming is next generation training so that our trainees are ready day one and feel confident. Number 12, time is always a concern for us. But you can bill for the non-face-to-face time that you might spend talking to a child psychiatrist and the time you spend coordinating care, whether it's with an outpatient therapist or the school. As long as it's same day, you can accumulate those minutes and code accordingly. Number 13, there are four states that do not have child psychiatry access programs, including Ohio, South Dakota, Arizona, and Idaho. If you are in one of these states, reach out to your state AAP chapters and partner with the State American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry chapters and lobby legislators. There are HRSA monies that are out there for these programs, and it is just so important that we have help. Number 14, if you're wondering where your state program is or how to get in touch with them, you can go to NNC pap.org, and it'll be in the show notes, and you'll be able to link to a map, click on your state, and find out how to get in touch. Number 15, final words of encouragement from these incredible clinicians. Do what you love and enjoy the journey. It's all about relationships. Thank you so much for listening today. I know you guys do lots and lots of hard work, and that the mental health and emotional needs of kids are Gosh, they're just so high, and I know the pandemic has just sent this through the roof. I hope that the podcast is bringing you some helpful information and encouragement, because the work you're doing is vital to our children. Take good care of yourselves, and please join me next week. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Let's do better together. This podcast was made possible by the team at Streamlined Podcasts. Music was composed by Connor McHugh and cover
2: art was designed by Alexia Barrero.